Greetings, Dig This listeners. This is a classic episode from the archives. Bill and Rich present the story of ESP Disc. And welcome to another episode of Dig This with the Splendid Bohemians. I'm Rich Buckland. I'm Bill Mesnick. Hi, everybody. Today, Bill, boy, are we going to uh, address a topic that uh, I think is 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 considered um, one of the more forbidden in the land of independent music. Uh, the story of ESP when, Disc. When you say forbidden, do you mean in its uh, thicket of complications. It's thicket and of variations. Exactly. You you have once again zoned in on uh, <laughs> on my attempt to prescribe what this label has represented um, since 1964 to the artists and to the listeners. Uh, ESP Disc was founded by Mr. Bernard Stolman. 19... Bernard Stolman. Now, Mr. Stolman was a very, very interesting, very interesting man. Later became uh, an attorney general in New York City. I did not know that. Yes, yes, a very interesting, uh, very interesting cat. But he... he had these, he had these artistic and uh, all messianic aspirations. Messianic would exactly. Let's let's go back to his initial desire to start a record label. Um, yeah, the first record was actually '63, Nikantu and Esperanto, and uh, he thought initially that was all he was going to do, and ended up uh, he was a real devotee of this language. So let I'm going to throw this to you to explain to everybody what that is. So those of of our listeners who might not know what Esperanto is. Well, it's the International Auxiliary Language. It is a language that was devised in, 19, in 1887 uh, by huh. Dr. Lazarus Damanoff, and uh, it was the pseudonym Doctoro Esperanto. And mm-hmm. the idea was to basically create a language easier to speak than English and that would translate worldwide. For all the countries of the world to have one universal language. To have a universal language. But to date, and it's interesting that there are two million Esperanto speakers today. But, But that particular language evidently did not take off with the, uh, (laughs) <laughs> it did not launch it, it did not launch and I don't know if ESP disc was the appropriate launching pad for for this language but evidently well, it remains a cult but Bernard felt very strongly about it obviously he felt very very strongly about it but there was something else he felt very strongly about and once his Esperanto uh, desires subsided Somewhat, he began to look for free-form jazz artists to record. Right. And that was... The first being Albert Eiler. Albert Eiler, who is still considered to this day uh, 
quite influential in, in jazz circles. Um, now, I'm not, as I, as I discussed with you prior to the podcast, the, the, the people I know, uh, the artists I know from ESP are the folk rock people, the thugs, the gods, pearls before swine, Ed Askew, Charlie Manson. <laughs> Charlie but, Manson. Um, uh, Charlie Manson, he's on the, he's on the roster. But, um, so I'm not well-versed in the freeform jazz, so maybe you can explain to me and, and other people, what is it about, I know, of course, I've heard of Sun Ra, and, you know, he's got a lot of, a lot of, rec- he made a lot of records, um, and I've, I was always fascinated by the covers of those albums. But what was it about Albert Eiler? What about what's his claim to fame in terms of his his approach to music? Well, I think basically what we're describing here, as Esperanto would be considered an alternative to English, what Eiler. Pharaoh Sanders, Byron Allen, Ornette Coleman, Paul Bly, Giuseppe Logan, uh, Sun Ra, of course, probably being the most popular name uh, in in the genre, Sonny Murray. What they primarily uh, contributed was articulating the language of jazz in a more improvisational, free-form spirited manner that then most jazz aficionados had grown accustomed to. And it certainly had its critics of the day and still has its critics. Many subscribe to the notion that it did not influence the craft, uh, that it simply was a free-form exercise, possibly quite selfish in nature but then again mm-hmm. well it's interesting I, I'm a devotee of the poet Philip Larkin who also uh, wrote reviews for um, uh, the paper in, in England um, I think it was the Telegraph um, of, of jazz records he was a jazz aficionado and um, you know I've read all of his reviews and for guys like Larkin who was basically born same time as my father, 1920. Traditional jazz, New Orleans, Dixieland jazz, that's jazz. When when the people like, even after World War II and bebop and, and uh, going into miles and all that stuff, he considered that a degradation and uh, a disintegration of the, you know, the the rock-solid, foundational elements of jazz, traditional jazz. So I guess by the time that these guys, you're talking about, after Coltrane, people like Albert Eiler and Sun Ra and everything, then now for, for people who like Larkin, it was unlistenable. And I would imagine that a majority of the jazz audience, as well as of course, anyone looking to explore this new language found it unlistenable as well because of the variety of 
the enormity of the sound if you took Yoko Ono and placed mm-hmm. her voice, placed, placed her vocal, her vocabulary musically into an instrument other than your vocal cords. This is what a lot of it sounded like to a lot of us back in the early 60s. Uh, That's a very interesting analogy, Yoko Ono. Some people consider her a great artist. Other other people consider her a fraud. And this conversation I, I have had many, many times. My suspicion is that beauty and art is in the eye, the ear, the mind of of the transcriber. It's, mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to, to assess just how influential or not influential an artist actually is. All we know is it's out there and her art, but of course she's attached to <laughs> one of the largest figures in the history of, of, of all uh, popular culture, John Lennon. When, when you think of Eiler, when you think of, a Nort, of Ornette Coleman, the name that, that pops up frequently is Charlie Parker. And when we talk yes. about Charlie Parker, we think of bebop. And that language, that musical language, was also denigrated. It was also thought to be uh, the forbidden, once again. The forbidden meaning that you are now messing with the traditions, the origins, and you're taking it to a place it never meant to go. It's sacrilege. But on the Lower East Side of New York, I can tell you that this sacrilege was being employed with great regularity, just as the folk musicians were employing their craft with great regularity. And to Stolman's credit, he heard this. He knew these, he, he, he was aware of these collisions of culture, of sound, and he went about the job of trying to uh, place it on record for for history. You know, that's a very interesting point. Um, I have here Bernard Stallman's, basically it's, uh, it's called Always in Trouble, an oral history of the ESP disc, the most outrageous record label in America by Jason Weiss. And he, in the center, he, he has some illustrations, and there's an ESP ad that was placed in Billboard, July 16th, 1966, and I think this is, I'm going to read a little bit of it, because I think you, you hit the nail on the head right here. It says, Dear Record Dealer, we are one year old and on the charts. It happened because we recorded the new music, where nobody else would listen. We opened our minds and our hearts. When nobody else, where nobody else would go, we ventured. What nobody else would do, we have done. And at the bottom, it says, in fact, do you know what it's all about? In caps, what is your function? Make it your business to find out. Um, so th- this was that kind of mission he was on to open up to new sounds. And the literacy of what you just shared with us is, is, is truly profound in a day and age where new ideas were trying to uh, integrate themselves into a, 
pop music marketplace or a mainstream marketplace. Independent labels had never been easy, but the task that Bernard Stolman undertook must have seemed incredible at the time. I don't think he was truly looking to to set the world on fire, but what he was looking to do was make the kind of dent which turned into much more than that. Uh, he, he has succeeded. Yeah, 50 years on, uh, we look back at ESP as a profound achievement. Truly a profound achievement. His next step is understanding that there is a youth culture in America that is pleading and it's making its case politically and it's making its case musically. So who does Mr. Stolman find? Who does he discover? (laughs) Group from the Lower East Side, my my stomping grounds, the Mm -hmm. Fugs. My contention is that they were they were knowingly um, employing the tactics that Lenny Bruce had uh, been been trying had, had attempted to to navigate. Lenny Bruce broke open stand-up comedy, and I think the Fugs made an effort to break open youth culture music by informing us that what now sounds quite juvenile um, were actually great explorations into speaking about the taboo. Yeah, the barriers had to be broken. I mean, we were coming out of the 50s, a very uptight society. And everything had, I think to the Fugs, everything seemed like it was up for grabs. Ed Sanders yeah. ran, ran the Peaceye Bookstore on Avenue A in uh, on the Lower East Side, and he was always invested in the politics of the day and uh, and and the popular culture. Truly, being older um, from the true beat school, the true beat school going back to to Kerouac. Um, his participation in this in this band, I believe, is what made the band as popular as it became, and he is the main force of why it remains so. It's the legend of, of Thule Kupferberg. Strengths are understood, and I think he's also a 
quite an underrated vocalist as as well. His yodeling skills. Yeah, going back and listening to those records, they're they're better than I actually remember them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something about still still haunting about mornings, mornings. And the yodel and feel like homemade shit. <laughs> and, the, and the yodel and Ed, Ed loved. He loved the yodel. He he loved. <laughs> he loved the yodel. But is he still alive? Ed Sanders is still with us. Thule passed uh, about three years ago, and uh, I think no longer than that. And you know his influences. His influence on on my life was uh, was dramatic due to the fact that. My first interaction with Thule was when I was putting together a program for our high school, Bayside High School. Bayside High. Bayside High. And I thought I would do the uh, the forbidden and bring in some of the folk acts who were performing in, in New York at the time and uh, succeeded pretty much due to the assistance of, uh, of Thule who was the first person that I contacted, and he put me in touch with Ed, and uh, we had spoken on and off uh, up until his passing. The big thing- Well, Joe, you had had your ear to the ground of what was happening, and it was the same ground that Bernard Stallman was listening to. I have an interesting question. The Fugs did not end up with a good relationship with Stallman. As a matter of fact, they tried to sue him, but they lost. And Stallman was bitter because he felt betrayed because um, he claimed that uh, they were approached by the CIA, this guy, uh, and who stole them away and became their management. And then this guy, Peter Edmiston, um, took both the thugs and pearls before swine and um, stole them away and made a deal with Warner Brothers and, and actually ripped Tom Rapp off and who never got a penny. But um, so I know this is a little closer to the end of the story, but but it, since we're talking about Ed Sanders, was he bitter about um, ESP? Sanders believed that he... Sanders took responsibility for having made what he considered the worst record deal in the history of Western civilization, possibly the worst business deal in the history of Western civilization. Uh, that's how he describes the the event. Uh, bitterness, I don't know if, if bitterness would be applicable because without the ESP thrust, there couldn't have been those reprise albums. There couldn't have been Tenderness Junction. It crawled into my hand, Honest, and of course, the famed Live at the Fillmore East. Yeah. So Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Bernard Stallman claims he got the, he, they made the first album with Folkways, I believe. Yes. And then he got the rights to it, and then he promoted them, he bought them equipment, he produced uh a residency at the Astor Place Theater, 
uh, from January to May of 66 um, to where they played regularly once a week. Um, and so he, and they were his biggest successes. I mean, they got national attention. Uh, them and, and uh, Pearls Before Swine. And um, so it was a mutually advantageous relationship initially. So much so that Stolman recognized that there would be other artists that he might be able to uh, to bring to the forefront that were thug-ish in the sense that these are not so much dedicated musicians as they are dedicated to to the outside, dedicated to the to the outside of, of the culture. Well, kids, that's part one of the fabulous story of the ASP disc. Stay tuned because we're going to come back and finish up with part two, focusing on the gods and pearls before swine. See you then.